Thanks so much, Graham. Let's bow our heads in prayer as we come to this wonderful and majestic passage of Scripture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that we need. We ask now that you would enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. If you don't know me, I'm Mike, one of the pastors here, and I'm going to be speaking on that passage that Graham just read for us so well. Uh, it's a, we're a little over halfway through the book of Hebrews, this letter that is known as the letter to the Hebrews. And these were a group of ordinary Christians who were just so weary. They'd started well on the Christian journey, but it, it was tough, hard, and the end wasn't in sight, and they were tired. And they were really asking, is it worth it? And perhaps some of us feel like that too. Is it worth it? And the writer has heard about this. He loves them. He's a pastor. He cares for them. So he sends them a letter, and in this, in this letter is his best sermon. And the main point he wants to make can be summed up in three words, which is this. Jesus is better. He's better. He's better than anything else. He's better than any alternative that you might think or be tempted to turn to instead in this world. Yes, the, the road is long and hard sometimes, but Jesus is worth it. He's better. And in the middle of the book, he sets out this incredibly powerful portrait of Jesus in one particular role one particular office that Jesus holds. This is how we should think about Jesus when we're tempted to give up. Jesus Christ is your great high priest. Jesus Christ is your great high priest. Now, when this book was written, the world was full of temples and priests and sacrifices. You could hardly go down to Greg's without tripping over a sacrifice or a priest or somebody walking around. They were on every street corner. And you know the modern world is very different, especially the Western world. So it is a bit remote to us to think about high priests and sacrifices. And as Ben's already mentioned, all this blood, what's that about? It's a bit of a stretch. But as we've been reading Hebrews in a London suburb in the 21st century, we are finding that it is just as relevant today as it was for its first readers because we too need Jesus as our great high priest. And what we're thinking about today gets to the heart of the matter, right to the heart of the letter, because this passage does a deep dive into the most important thing that the high priest did, which is this. He made sacrifice for sins on behalf of himself and other people. Now, why do I say this is the most important part of his job? Because sacrifice for sins addresses the biggest problem that human beings have. Our real problem, our deepest need, the great dysfunction at the core of our being, our spiritual cancer. And I'm talking about what the Bible diagnoses as the problem of sin and God's solution to save us from it. Here's the point of the passage. If you're taking notes, you could write this down. Jesus saves through sacrifice. Jesus saves through his blood. Now we're going to look at this passage under two headings today. The first one is our deepest problem. They might be coming up on the screen. 
And the second one is God's greatest provision. Our deepest problem, God's greatest provision. Firstly, our deepest problem, the problem of sin. And let me just admit that we already have a problem in this room, I think. Because I've just said that, that your deepest issue is sin. And the passage teaches that we're guilty that we need forgiveness, and forgiveness only comes through the shedding of blood. And in fact, verse 22 goes so far as to say that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And already we've got problems because many modern people find these ideas are actually weird, if not offensive. The idea of sin, guilt, forgiveness, sacrifice, these things are conceptually quite remote to us. Some people have asked, Why are you Christians so obsessed with blood? You're always singing about it. All these hymns about blood. You know what, Sam? We've got a couple more coming after the sermon. Why? People feel that, you know, the world's got enough blood and violence in it. What we need is a religion that's full of love and uplifting. Not more blood, not more violence. But the book of Hebrews tells us that there's power in the blood. And if... You're struggling with these things today, uh, and you're just not sure. I'm so glad you're here with us. These are difficult things. And if you stay with me, I hope to try and persuade you that actually this is the best news ever for you and me. Now, the first half of our chapter takes us into ancient history. It's a time period called the ancient Near East. He reaches back into the early history of the people of Israel, They were a Hebrew nation. They had grown into a great people group of many thousands in the land of Egypt. But they were enslaved by an oppressive regime that was led by an authoritarian dictator called the Pharaoh, the king, and the rest is history. When the Israelites were freed and traveling on their way to a land that God had promised, God revealed that among all the many other things that God can do, he is also an architect. God revealed the plans for a special building. I've spent an afternoon this week in the Bartlett School of Architecture in central London, University College London. They say it's the finest architecture school in Europe, if not the world. At least my son told me that, and he goes there, so I'm sure he knows. And I've, we've spent the time looking at all these drawings of, of uh, different kinds of buildings and structures. Amazing the work that an architect puts in, thinking about every single angle. And God is an architect. And here, uh, actually on the screen, Alex, can you put that up? Number one is, is, a, is just a sort of sketch of what this building looked like that God revealed. It was actually a, originally a tent made of fabric, and later on it was made into a, 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 a solid building uh, called the temple. But it's the same structure. Now, as you can see, it's got a curtain, a a, a kind of fence all the way around it, and then you come in through the east side, through the right-hand side, and the first thing you'd see was a whacking great altar. And it says there, the altar of burnt offering. So the first thing you would see as you came in would be this really big thing covered in metal, and it'd be fire on the top, burning animals, meat. You could smell it. It would be like a barbecue that had gone crazy. And beyond that is a laver that's a big bronze basin where you could wash and then beyond that you would see in front of you this special tent this thing that God had revealed the dimensions of and how it was to be decorated Alex can you bring up the next slide 
And you would see this thing, and it was beautifully colored, and it's, it's got loads of gold and blue and all this royal imagery, and the finest, only the very finest materials and everything were used in it. And inside this tent, that too has two sections separated by a curtain. And the first section is called the holy place. And you and I couldn't go in there. Only the priests could go in there. And the priests had to descend from a certain family. And inside there, there's some bread that the priests have to keep it fresh and keep renewing this bread. And there's also a light, a lampstand. So you've got the light and the bread that God is giving to his people. But then there was another curtain. And beyond that was a place that nobody went except once a year, one person. And that's called the most holy place. Or you might have heard it called the Holy of Holies. So what we see from this structure is that there's just no way to get into the worship of God without blood. If you walked into the front entrance, that bit on the right-hand side, you're actually going to have to pass three altars to get to the presence of God. The first one is that big altar of burnt offering. The second one is an altar of incense that's burning wonderful perfumes. And the third altar is right in the Holy of Holies itself. And it's known as the mercy seat or the atonement cover. We'll think more about that in a moment. Nobody can approach God without blood. You couldn't just walk into this house of worship. No one gets a backstage pass. No one could access all areas. Why not? Because God is holy. He's holy. He's absolutely separate from us, and he's absolutely morally pure and perfect. And his holiness is depicted to us in the Bible as fire. That's the most vivid representation of what God's presence would be like, is fire. Refining and dangerous. Now, next slide. I'm so glad uh, that Indiana Jones is back. Our Harrison Ford is about, he's nearly as old as Basil Smith. <laughs> but he's not as good looking, I'll tell you that. Our Indiana Jones, some of us remember when this, the first time round, and this is an image from uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And if you're a young person here and you haven't seen it, it is a terrific film. I'm going to spoil it for you now. Indiana Jones is seeking the Lost Ark of the Covenant. And this is a box a chest, a wooden chest, covered in gold inside and out. And on top of it, it's got these two angels. It's called the cherubim. And this was this, at the center of that temple structure that we just looked at. And Indiana Jones is seeking it, but the Nazis are seeking it as well because they think that they can unleash the power of God that's inside that box and help them to win the Second World War. By the way, this is not a true story. <laughs> Good job, Indiana Jones is there. Because he ends up uh, saving the day. Now, this golden box represents God's holy presence. And when the Nazi guys, who are so stereotyped, it's unbelievable, open the lid, they are consumed by the fire of God's holiness. And there's a scene where a guy's face literally melts down like that. So maybe, parents, you want to think about the age range of who's going to watch this. And then you can write and complain to the church later. But, you know, eventually the ark they, gets the lid back on. And they put it in this crate and it goes into a massive warehouse and it's hidden away because everyone is terrified of it. You don't know what to do with it. You can't touch it. The message is clear. God is holy, so leave him well alone. 
Now, what the film gets right is that God is more holy than we can possibly imagine. You can't just stroll in to his presence. And this idea that God is at a distance because of his holiness captures the experience of the Old Testament believer. They took part in real worship. And it was a real God that they were worshipping, but it had to be done at a distance for the sake of the people. Access is restricted. It's not safe. And that intersection was so special. Chapter 9, verse 3 says, Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place. A curtain blocked the entrance. Blocked everyone from God's presence. Even the priests. Only the high priest can go in there only once a year. And inside that inner chamber is another altar and the Ark of the Covenant. And this is our fourth and final one, Alex. Here is a model that they've made. It's a beautiful model. And as you can probably see, you might not be able to, but at the sides... Down here, there are two kind of like hoops. And that was so they could put poles through and carry it because you couldn't even touch this. You couldn't even touch it. There's a, a sobering story in the Old Testament where somebody, the, the thing is being carried by some oxen and the guy, they stumble and a guy puts out his hand to steady it and he dies on the spot. So what's in the box? I hear you say. Stone tablets. These were the, the, the tablets that had the covenant written on that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. A staff, Aaron's staff that had budded. And some manna, the bread of heaven that they'd eaten in the wilderness. All these things. See, the ark's a bit like a time capsule. Do you ever do that? Maybe one was done when, when this building was built. Trevor Arch would know. It, what, he's nodding, it was. You know, they put some stuff in that... Kids do this, they put, you know, I'll put in a, a little, uh, put in a coin from the, the day I was born. I'll put in some sweets that I was eating. I'll put in a Pokemon card. I'll put in, you know, the, a copy of the newspaper from the day it was buried. You know, it's a time capsule. It captures what was going on at that time. And what this ark does is a bit like a time capsule. God's put in this chest reminders of all that he's done for his people. He's given them his word. He's provided for them. He's protected them. It's a little history of Israel. Reminding of all that he's done. But the biggest and most important part is the top. You see those two angels with rings overstretched. That bit where they reach over is called the mercy seat. And it depicts God's throne. He is enthroned between the cherubim. And as you can see, there is no model of God. Strictly forbidden. You shall not make for yourself any idols. So when you go into the holy and holiest place, you still don't see a model of God. Angelic beings covered in gold, yes. So if you or I had actually had the opportunity to go up to that room and, and had the opportunity to pull back that curtain, I wonder what you would have felt. Even if you're not a religious person, I think you might have drawn back the curtain with a trembling hand. And some would wonder if they would ever come out alive. It would have been awe-inspiring. But as scary as that was, it's just a picture. It only ever was a symbol of what God's real throne room is like in heaven. The prophet Isaiah came the closest to seeing that, and it shook him to the core. In chapter 6 of Isaiah, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
the train of his robe, just the hem at the bottom of God's robe, filled the room that was as high as this. So he sees this vision of God. And flying around are these angelic beings that are not, actually, it means burning ones. It's like they're, they're on fire, seraphs. And they've got wings, but they're actually covering their eyes so they don't look on God. And some of the wings they're flying with, but others, this is all vision language. And they cry out. The, thing, the only thing they can think to say is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. It's in triplicate. It's the only time in the Old Testament that God is, anyone is describing with three times. It's an emphatic statement. The thing that is most striking to these angels who live in God's presence all the time is that he is so holy. What do you think you would do if you walked into the real throne room? You would not say, ah, God, there you are. Nice to meet you at long last. Do you know what? I've got some questions. Can we have a bit of a chat? I've been wondering about suffering. Now, what we would say, like Isaiah, is, woe is me. He was completely undone. Now, why? Why, why is this? Isaiah puts it in, in these terms. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm from a people of unclean lips. And the lips speak what's in the heart. Unclean. I'm dirty in your presence. I see myself for who I really am. In other words, it's because of sin. And sin can be defined as falling short in any way of God's perfect standards. Falling short of a perfect standard. But that's quite difficult to grasp, isn't it? So let me give an illustration from a great Christian thinker and writer called Francis Schaeffer. He said this, imagine that you have a tape recorder around your neck. Now already I've lost half the audience. A tape recorder was a thing that recorded your voice and other things. Imagine you've got an MP3 recorder, is that? No, what, what is it then? A phone. <laughs> Thanks, love. That's my wife. Imagine you've got a phone around your neck and it only records, it's very special, it doesn't record everything. It's not like Siri. This phone only records whenever you tell somebody else what to do. Or you tell somebody else something like this. You ought to do this. In other words, it's only going to record the things that you said were standards for human behavior. When you criticize somebody and said they should have done that, that will go on the phone. And then on the day of judgment, God sits you down and he says, look, I'm going to be really generous with you. I'm not going to judge you by my standards. I'm not even going to judge you by any other religion. I'm simply going to judge you by your standards. Your standards of human behavior that you laid on everyone else all of your life. Let's listen to the tape, shall we? Not a single person would pass that test. And that's just our standards. How much less would we pass this test? Here's Hebrews 4. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 
Are you starting to see how deep the problem is? In fact, I think we all know it deep inside. This is why the Bible talks about so much blood. Because blood shows that something is really, really serious. It's not funny. Negatively, blood means brokenness and guilt and staining. If you have blood gushing from your head or gushing from your mouth, there is a problem. You are broken in some way and you need help. Blood also represents guilt. We know this. We say things like, you have blood on your hands. You know, people were talking about the terrible tragedy, the Grenfell Tower in London, which burned down and killed those people. And people said, they blamed some of the, the organizations involved, and they said, they have blood on their hands. Or we say, blood on your own head. Guilt. And then there's staining. The idea that you've got blood on your hands and you can't get rid of it. I mean, the most famous example of this is Lady Macbeth, who has collaborated and helped her husband in the murder of the king and wakes up at night tormented with guilt in her conscience at the thought of what they've done because so much blood came out of the king. And she washes her hands and she says, this could make the multitudinous seas incarnadine. This guilt is so great, it could turn the seas red. So we understand this, I think, viscerally, that blood represents brokenness and guilt and staining. So why couldn't you get through the Old Testament worship without blood and sacrifice? Because the blood is teaching us something. It's teaching that what is wrong with life on this earth is really, really serious. Just educating people, just coaching them, just doing PSHE lessons and uh, instructive videos and therapy and moral teaching. That's not going to deal with it. The brokenness and the filth of life is so deep and we can't fix it without a solution that's very, very deep and serious. It's the first thing it's showing us. It's also showing us that there's real guilt. The world is broken. Guess what? We are part of it. And a big part of the reason why the world is such a bad place to live is you and me. We're part of it. No man is an island. We are responsible to some degree. And there is a stain. Blood sacrifice says there is something seriously wrong. It needs to be washed away. There is guilt and shame. You can't seem to get rid of it. You tried all sorts of things. You can't get rid of it. You can't wipe out your sense of failure. The passage twice mentions this word conscience, a really prominent word in the letter to the Hebrews, more so than other parts of the Bible. Verse 9, this is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered in the past were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. How can you get a clean conscience? What can wash away my sin? Conscience is your self-evaluation of how fit you are to be in someone's presence. Are you fit for the presence of God? Self-evaluation. A bad conscience means actually it's a good thing. It means you're self-aware. Jack Miller American preacher said, uh, if you have a bad self-image, that's good news because you're being realistic. 
you realize that you couldn't stand close examination. If people really knew who you were, if they really knew what was wrong with you, if they really knew your thoughts and your motives, if they really knew what you would like, you know that you would be rejected. Guy Ritchie's one of the most successful film directors of of uh, the last generation. He lives in central London. I don't know his religious views. I've not noticed anything in his work that suggests he's a Christian, but this is a stunning thing that he said in an interview. He said, I had a shift in consciousness. It's a dirty world out there. Everyone's got a bucket that can accommodate a certain amount of filth, and eventually my bucket got filled. There were things I began to find repugnant for the soul and the psyche. I could no longer entertain anyone who was up to some form of shenanigans. It's a world full of people having to dodge the law. But my intolerance of filth now is so unambiguous, and for that I'm deeply grateful. This is not a religious man. He's right about the world. But the real breakthrough occurs actually when you finally admit it's not just the world, it's my deepest problem too. That sin is a much, much bigger deal than we ever realized. That it is a blot on your soul that will destroy you and that you need a rescue beyond yourself. Our deepest problem. Second point and quicker. God's greatest provision. Look at verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. Hopefully now we are beginning to see the importance of knowing the Old Testament. This is why we need it, to understand what Jesus did. If we didn't have the Old Testament, we would be like a person who gets hold of a box set of a series like Downton Abbey or West Wing and starts watching it at episode 18. Yeah, this is quite good. I'm not quite sure what's going on. Who's that? Why are they doing that? You know, you needed to start in episode 1. You could understand some of what was going on, but you wouldn't have all the background. And when we read the New Testament without the Old, we miss an awful lot. Fourth century African bishop Augustine famously wrote, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. This is the point of all of that tabernacle structure that we looked at. All of it, the the priests and the animals and the burning things and the curtains and all of all that thing we looked at which this chapter is all about all that bloody sacrifice and those priests is all pointing forwards it's like the old testament believers are kind of tiptoes standing just trying to see on the horizon what is all this pointing to in fact peter says that the prophets were like that that they spoke and they were trying to find out what the holy spirit was telling them about what would come in the future but it was reserved for us who live this side of jesus christ How does it work? Now we know, verse 13, the blood of animals, goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. All of that stuff achieved a certain kind of ritual purity because you were obeying the regulations. Superficially, 
Skin deep, you'd be cleansed. But it didn't do anything to the heart. Verse 14 gives the contrast. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. He offered himself to God as a perfect, spotless, unblemished, morally pure person. And he gave himself for us. And he's the eternal son of God and he lives forever, so his sacrifice is good for all time. We don't need to make any more sacrifices. The Lord's Supper is not a sacrifice. We're not re-sacrificing Jesus. We're just remembering him. Once for all. And Jesus, through this, brings us into a new relationship. Verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. That's a new relationship. That those who are called may receive the promised inheritance. There's an eternal inheritance in the world to come for everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ. In a new glorious body. In a world where there's no more sorrow and pain and sickness and death. A world of love, a promised inheritance. And the best thing about that world is you actually get to be with Jesus and see him face to face. The promised eternal inheritance. He's done that now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Can you think of anything greater? Jesus Christ the eternal Son of God, bled and died for you. This is why we can't write Christianity off as just another primitive ancient religion, because it is unique. In the ancient world, all the gods were always demanding sacrifice from people to make them do something. The Greek king Agamemnon had to sacrifice his daughter because the gods told him to. Is that the God of the Bible demanding our blood? No. Hebrews teaches that Jesus Christ is the one who created the world and sustains it. He's the exact representation of God's being. He's like the image of God, on a, like the image of someone on a coin. If you look at Jesus, you see God. You can't get any higher description of, of this man, Jesus Christ, who is the incarnate Son of God. And so here we have a God who doesn't demand blood, but offers his own blood for you. It's the opposite of all those old religions. He offers his blood for you. Acts chapter 20 says, it talks about the church that Jesus purchased with his own blood. What does this look like? Imagine that we were walking along the banks of a fast-flowing river, you and me, and I turned to you and said, you know, I want to show you how much I, I love you and care for you. I'm going to die for you. And then I just turned and threw myself into the river and drowned. What would you think? You would think I was out of my tiny mind. But imagine that we were walking along the banks of that same river and you fell in. And you were going under, you were struggling, you were drowning, and I dived in and dragged you to safety somehow, but I was pulled under and drowned myself. I saved your life, but I died as a result. Now that was love. 
Giving your life to save someone is the most loving thing you can do. And this passage is teaching that Jesus died to rescue us. From what? As far as I'm aware, I'm not drowning. Aren't you? Just think about your deepest problem again. You're in deep water, friend. Every human being is accountable to God who knows all things. Everything we've ever thought, everything we've ever done, we will answer for it. The way we've lived has built up a debt that we cannot repay. Every lie, every slander, every hurtful comment, every gossip, every lustful thought, every moment of envy, every selfish act, every moment of anger, it's a mountain of debt and we just can't pay it off. Let's put it in human terms. Imagine that you lent me your car and I then drove it into a lamppost. We took it to the garage and the repair bill was £5,000. And I said, I'm really sorry about this. I haven't got the money. I'm just so sorry. Now, there are two ways you could deal with that. One, you could demand the £5,000, which I rightly owe you, and then you could watch my children starve. Or you could forgive the debt and let me off. The thing is, the debt doesn't just disappear, does it? Someone's got to pay the 5000 The forgiveness option is actually very costly to you. Someone has to pay. And what forgiveness means is that instead of getting me to pay the debt, you would pay it for me. Now, that's just a car. And at the end of of the day, it's only money. But what about debt in relationship terms? What about when someone really hurts you and you really feel it? Forgiveness is always painful. Over 20 years ago, Melissa and I had uh, an experience with someone who had been a friend that uh, was deeply, deeply hurtful and uh, ruinous, and it hurt for years, and we were angry and upset. How, how could they have done that? And you can imagine how we felt. There was a debt. It was a debt in relationship terms, and it needed to be repaid. There were two ways of paying it. Either we could seek revenge and hurt that person like they'd hurt us, or we could forgive them and refuse to take that revenge. But the debt didn't just disappear. We had to absorb it into ourselves, take the anger and the pain and the hurt, and refuse to take it out on them. This is what the cross of Jesus Christ does. He died as a ransom to set us free from the sins we committed. Jesus dived into our world and got us to safety, but he knew he had to drown. It means that Jesus Christ took our debt and paid it himself. We had wronged God, but God's refused to take revenge. He absorbed the pain and evil of our sin into himself. He paid it all. Now, because Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, this means that God himself has taken your debt and written it off in his own person so that you and I could walk free. Now, in the Bible, blood does have those connotations of brokenness and guilt and staining, but it also is a very positive symbol because blood represents life. The life is in the blood. If blood's pumping around your body at the moment, that's a good thing because you're alive. And I haven't killed anyone since the start of the sermon. Think about uh, childbirth. Life doesn't even come into the world without blood being shed. Great to see you, Reese. 
dad for the third time this week. And most of all, when blood is given on another person's behalf, it means there's an extraordinary power of self-giving. Ernest Gordon was a prisoner of war in Thailand. He uh, was in a prison camp, and you may remember the film, The Bridge Over the River Kwai. He was involved in that uh, episode. He later wrote a book called Through the Valley of the Kwai and recounted a true story that at the end of the day's work, uh, the tools were counted, and a guard shouted that a shovel was missing. Serious problem, because if someone's got a shovel, they could escape. The guard strode up and down, raving and screaming. He demanded that the guilty person step forward to take his punishment, but no one moved. The guard's rage reached new heights. He cried out in broken English, then all die, all die, he shouted, and to prove it, he cocked his rifle and pointed it at the head of the first man in the line. At that moment, a Scottish soldier in Argyle stepped forward, stood to attention, and calmly said, I did it. The guard tore into him. He smashed him. His blood ran down his face, but he still stood to attention. The guard was enraged. He lifted his rifle and he smashed it down on the skull of the man. He sank to the ground, never to rise again. But the guard continued to beat the body and stopped only when he was exhausted and covered in blood. Later, when the tools were counted, it turned out that no shovel was missing. The other men were saved by his blood. I wonder how they changed. I wonder if they've got a different perspective on life, on what's really important and what's actually trivial. I wonder if they became less selfish as a result. I wonder if they were able to give themselves more fully to the needs of others because that man saved them with his blood. What about you? Have you felt, sensed the power of Jesus' blood and its power to deal with this, the depth of your problem today? How will it change you? If you're uh, still exploring the Christian faith, I'd love to talk to you more or somebody else here. Do come and grab me afterwards. And if you are a Christian who's been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, let's never forget the old, old story of Jesus and his blood. Let's pray. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Oh, Lord, what can we say? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amen.